You are listening to the Fuerte Network. Hola a todos, welcome back to Migrants on Air Innovation Podcast. My name is Carlos Alberto, uh, and I'm here with my co-host, uh, Karina Domínguez. Karina, ¿cómo estás? Hola, Carlos. Estoy muy bien. Feliz de estar aquí. ¿Cómo estás tú? Bien, bien, todo bien. I just noticed uh, when I'm introducing myself, I've gotten in the habit of saying Carlos Alberto instead of like, like at work, they call me Carlos Alberto because there's like a couple of Carloses. And uh-huh. I'm in the habit of saying like my middle name and I can't stop, which I've never done that before. <laughs> no, yeah, that's why like every time we're doing an episode, I'm like, what do I call you? Carlos <laughs> Yanez or, or Alberto? Yeah, it's so funny. It's a, like a habit I picked up. Um, but yeah, I have a lot of names. Um, <laughs> but I'm super excited about today. I think uh, we've never really had really an immigrant mother on our podcast before. It's always been more younger fo- folks, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm excited to like get a different viewpoint. Um, and we'll get into it a little later, but we're having on someone who is very, ¿cómo se dice? Bien exitosa with all the cards she was dealt. And I'm really proud of her like trajectory and development. Um, and I'm really excited to have her on, just more so because she reminds me so much of like people in my family and uh, people that I grew up with. So I'm super excited. Yeah, I'm really excited too. I think just hearing that perspective, how you said of like a mom, I think even if we've had like guests on that were like immigrant parents before, I don't think we've ever focused on that. Like we've never asked them questions about that. So I'm really excited to see what she has to say and then see like what that will, I guess, spark in us too. Because I've always had a lot of questions about like becoming a parent especially like when you're undocumented and like all of these existential questions that come to mind so i'm excited to hear from her perspective yeah i know me too and i mean like there's a lot of things that i never asked my mom that Mm. i feel like maybe i could ask our guests like there's, there's just things we've never talked about before i guess like in deciding to have kids or what that kind of looks like as an immigrant parent or how they felt um, while raising a kid. So I think it's really interesting mm-hmm. because I've never really thought about a lot of the questions that I thought about for today. Yeah, that's true. I think whenever it is like we have to talk to family members, it's a little bit like difficult to want to ask them these just because how you said, like we never have these conversations with them, but when it's someone else, like, we just want to know everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we can hop straight to it and just go ahead and introduce our guest. Um, our guest for today is Brie Vasquez. Um, and she'll tell you a little bit about herself when she introduces herself. But super excited to have her on and we can get right to it. Welcome back. Uh, we're here with our guest, uh, Bri Vasquez. Bri, ¿cómo estás? Bien aquí, ya sabes, echándole <laughs> No hay de otra, mi rey, no hay de otra. Uh, would you uh, be able to introduce yourself, where you're from and what your migration story is? Yeah, sure. So my name is Briana. I was born in El DF, soy una chilanga. I moved here when I was seven. I was a product of NAFTA migration, which I didn't realize until I got older, like exactly what happened. So basically, pues mi mamá ya no la podía hacer en la Ciudad de México, you know? And uh, my grandma was like, you know, 
vente aquí, tenemos casa, te puedes quedar con nosotros. And so we moved actually to Bellevue. Um, and uh, my parent, my mom worked in restaurants. And so, yeah, that's that's how we got here. Definitely didn't have papers, though. Like, that was not <laughs> that was not a thing. It was not no legal thing. Like, we were coming to Disneyland and we never left, you know? Not Disneyland. That's what literally everybody I ask. Like, I came to Disneyland for two weeks. <laughs> and yeah. then Disneyland, like, still hasn't happened for a lot of folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, said we were coming for Disney like I had to leave like my toys like our whole apartment you know nada de que you know it was just not a thing that you were coming back like you knew you were staying there did you know that you were staying um, like pretty early on yeah so my mom told me like before we got on the uh -huh. plane that we were moving here I was actually excited like I didn't understand the ramifications of not being able to cross regularly or leaving my dad leaving my cousins like I didn't really get it you know I thought it'd be cool to live in the United States you know I, I didn't understand you know I, I feel also that like I didn't really get the full context or like the ramifications of it until very recently actually because I went back to visit my dad and like just seeing his his interaction with my sisters and just how different his relationship is with you know the children that he was able to raise versus me and you know seeing my sisters convivir like how close they are how you know I didn't have like a lot of relatives here in the United States so just not having that fam familial I had a little bit like I had some relatives here but not how Mexicans are like that they have like a big group of folks that are there to support each other I didn't really understand the gravity of that until very recently I think yeah I think for me something similar is going on right now but kind of the opposite like I've had cousins who are currently visiting here and I see the way that they interact with each other and you kind of feel like an outsider like in a weird way Uh, so I definitely like understand what what you're saying. How was it like early on, like those first few years for you when when you were younger? Like at first you were excited. Did that like excitement kind of continue or how did things change throughout the years? Honestly, I felt really safe. My um, my mom worked really late nights, right? Because she worked in a restaurant. And when you work in restaurants, the money is on the weekends and nights, right? And so my grandma took care of me. And she was a dope person, you know, like she was a good caretaker. And so I, I had her, I had like a tia, I had an uncle that taught me how to ride a bike. I don't remember really struggling with English. I'm sure I did because I, I don't read my diaries a lot from back then because it's a little painful to recall, but I, I was writing in Spanish, you know, and I was really, you know, I, I think I just missed my dad. But I think I was really focused on assimilation. I was, I do not remember Mexican kids in my elementary school. I was very much the only one. Um, and people were nice to me. I don't remember like what you would call racism as a little kid, but I remember feeling like I didn't belong. And so I really gravitated to Asian children because a lot of them are immigrants or refugees. And so we kind of had that same connection and I was able to, even though they weren't Latinos, I, I felt 
kinship with them, you know, because a lo mejor tampoco tenían mucho dinero. And so it was just like, I understood, you know, having a parent that, you know, spoke two languages or, you know, they, the only thing that I think was different with them, they didn't talk about their undocumented status or I didn't think Asian people were undocumented. I mean, obviously that's not a, a reality, right? But in my brain, only Mexicans were undocumented. And like, it was like a source of shame because my mom was like, you are not allowed to tell anybody that que no tienes papeles because if you do, you could put us in danger and we would have to leave. So that was, I don't know if it was shame, but like, it was like a very guarded secret that it was only for me and like my relatives. Nobody knew. Even when I got married, like I didn't really tell my my husband that que no tenía papeles. Can we hop up back a little bit to a couple yeah. of your points? I feel like it was super interesting because something that you just said, like, I didn't think that Asian individuals could be undocumented. I'm like, I feel like that's a product, you know, like of like the popular stories we're told on media or like how like maybe Hollywood can portray uh, Latinos in, in like popular culture. I feel like I see a lot of TV shows and a lot of movies where usually like it's Mexican individuals that are portrayed as undocumented. So I feel like that's super interesting, especially when you realize because you grew up in Bellevue, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, well, I was here a couple of years and then I moved to mm-hmm. Lidwich, which is more middle class. But yes, Bellevue is like. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because I think the demographics in, in the Seattle metro area are different than where Karina and I from because we're from like majority like Mexican neighborhoods like or like majority Mexican areas. So to us, it's a super different experience because I mean, like I'm, I'm super used to like 95% of the school being like Mexican and then like a couple white kids. And like maybe like a couple of Vietnamese kids or a couple of Korean kids. So I think it's super interesting to hear your side of it, like your point of view with like, because the demographics are so different over here. Honestly, like I craved like Latin identity and like Latino culture. I remember when Mi Vida Loca, have you guys seen that movie? You might be too young. There's this movie called Mi Vida Loca. You can only find it on YouTube. It's like these two cholas in like Silver Lakes, uh, like, oh no, Echo Park, I'm sorry, in LA. Echo Park. Y creo que una no tiene papeles and one does. And like, you know, they have the lipstick, the hair, the, the you know, everything. And I was just so drawn to these women. I was so drawn to Selena. Just anything that I could like grasp, even um, Jennifer Lopez. Anything that had just any sort of like Latinidad to it, I was just so drawn to it. But it's not like it is now where it's all over the TV, you know, Bad Bunny, all these things like that was not my reality. So I do think like a lot of my teenage years were focused on blending in with Asian kids as much as I could. And I do know that a lot of them are undocumented, but they're or their reality is just a little different because their parents came as refugees from the Vietnam War or like Laos or Cambodia. So ellos tenían papeles and they kind of had a leg up on my family, right? Because they work really hard and but so did my mom. But having papers changes the whole game for you. You know, you can buy a house and do things that I feel if you look at how our families are now, from the kids that were refugees versus mine, I feel like they got ahead. And I don't think it's because my mom worked less hard than them. 
my mom worked really hard. My mom continues to work in restaurants at 60 whatever years of age, you know, someone that works that hard. It's not from lack of trying, but it's just you're poor. Like there's a certain limit to how much money you can make in a restaurant. That's just the reality. There's no like health. I mean, maybe now there's health care, but like back then there was no health care, you know. You had to watch out for La Migra, like just little things that were scary that, you know, when you have papers, it kind of lets you rest a little bit, I think, you know. And also, my mom married an American citizen when I was 11, but they did not apply for papers like right away. So and I I was thinking about this when preparing for this interview, and I think it was twofold. One, un poquito de hueva to like do it. And I don't think it's like, Weba, like, oh, I'm really lazy. I think it's, you know, you're working Monday through Friday. When you're off on the weekends, like, ¿quién tiene tiempo de hacer este tipo de cosas, you know? I think also, like, they didn't know how to navigate the systems because we didn't grow up with a lot of Mexican people that we could be like, hey, how do you do this? I think it's kind of scary to go up in front of immigration, be like, please let us stay, because what if they say no? And then we get kicked out, right? And I think it was also a little bit done to control me a little bit. Because when I was around, I started getting in trouble in sixth grade. Just like started getting suspended, fights, you know, just kicking it hella hard. And so it was like a way to tell me, you need to behave or else you may get, I'll send you back to Mexico, you know, and she did. She sent me back when I was either 14 or 15. I had to go live there for a year. And I got I did come back across the border in El Paso. <laughs> I got lucky with this Border Patrol guy, man. Like, because when you were crossing back then, you had your passport. And I think they either, they, they did some sort of stamp. And I'm not, you know, very good with the particulars. But they did the stamp that you could kind of tell when you weren't, coming back and forth. You know what I'm saying? And so I do remember him saying like, mm, this isn't right. But he kind of just said, fuck it. Cause we had my grandma with us. Like she had a visa and my mom, I think was already like a uh, resident at the time. And we were with my, um, my American dad. So I think he kind of just let it slide when he probably shouldn't have. Right. And so I didn't get my work permit until I was like 18 or 19. So right. So before those that time, I was just getting in a lot of trouble. Like I didn't go to school for a year. I was skipping school. I was sneaking out. And I just think it was I think it was a threat from my mom to like try to get me to stay my ass home and be a good kid, you know? Also, I think the reason why I was bad, I, I did have some trauma happen to me like when I was younger and I got myself in some dangerous situations, but also I didn't feel like I had a future, right? So like we're talking about college, like I'm applying here, I'm applying there. And I knew I couldn't apply to college porque yo no tenía papeles. And so it was just like, well, I don't have a future. Like who cares what I'm doing? You know, let's, let's go out, let's be bad. Everybody, can you tell us a little bit more about that? What was, like, I guess, the situation back then with going to college, like, without papeles? Like, were there people who talked about that? 
I mean, maybe, but I don't remember. I I just have no recollection of that being a thing. I remember thinking that if you wanted to go to school y no tenías papeles, you had to pay for it out of pocket. And like, who has that kind of money? Like, that's just, and I think you had to pay like full tuition and you might need to like, you know, fact check me and stuff like that. But that was just my impression. Que tú tenías que pagar like full tuition out of state or international student. That's what it was. You had to pay international student. And yes, you could go to college, but I didn't have international student money. So I I actually had good grades and like I graduated on time, but I didn't have that kind of money to like go to school for real, you know, or get a beca. I'm sure there were becas for like undocumented kids, but because I didn't grow up with a lot of Latinos, because I didn't talk about undocumented status, like how was I ever going to get those resources, right? I had a cousin that grew up here and she's 10 years older than me and she did go to college, but she got her papers in 85 with the Ronald Reagan shit, right? Or 86. And so like her, even though she came here undocumented, her path was different. She had that, even though she was very poor, she was able to like figure it out on her own because there was no one to help her. There was no one to be like, oh, you fill out this paper and then you do this. Like she had to figure that shit out on her own. And I just, I didn't know how. Yeah, no, and I think uh, it is so common, I know, like when like information isn't like, I guess like spread to like community members, like, I think there's a lot of fear with like filling out those specific paperwork to like not knowing what to do. But like from what I know of you now, like how did you get to where you are now from the person that you were as a teenager? Well, sending me to Mexico worked because that shit scared me shitless, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> you got to get up for real job and you got to support the family. Like, and that was hard. And so I was like, nope, I'm going back to the States. I came back um, after high school graduation. I I think I just worked in a restaurant because that was kind of like what, what we did. That's what my family did. So I was working in a restaurant full time, going to school part time. So my AA took me four years instead of the customary two. When I was 21, I think, or 22, I, ma- I got married really young to this dude in the military. And I got pregnant. <sighs> like my last semester of college. (laughs) And so I remember being so disappointed because I really, that was not in the, that was not my plan, right? I was going to get my AA and then I was going to go, I was going to get a degree in international relations. That's what I was going to, I was going to work in the UN. I don't know how that was going to work, but whatever. And I get pregnant and I fucking worked full time and went to school and got my got my AA that year that I gave birth. So like I gave birth in March and probably graduated in May. I didn't walk because no, I think I graduated in December. I didn't walk because my ex-husband got transferred here to Seattle. So I just whatever. And then I applied to UW, but because I had had trouble getting my high school diploma. I had to do like all this extra stuff just to graduate. Let's just say I I had some trouble getting uh, some transcripts. And so when I applied for UW, they asked for additional information and I never gave it to them. So I just had my little AA. I got a divorce and I met someone new and I moved to California. 
And I did not want to work in restaurants no more. I was like, this is not the life for me. I was a good waitress, but fuck, it's a hard job, right? And I wanted something that was different than that. So as soon as I moved to Cali, I was on Craigslist. And I see this ad for bilingual help people. Like it was a very vague ad. And I was like, I want to help people and I'm bilingual. So I applied. It was like 10 days after moving to Cali. I applied at like midnight. And the lady calls me the next day. She's like, can you come in today? And I'm like, is this a tranza? Like I didn't know, you know. So I show up and she has this like law it's these the ledger from like the actual law of that she has to follow for her job and she has it on the desk with like these written questions and she's like read this little section and then answer these questions and it was like a townhome looking office right so she goes upstairs and I'm reading this thing and I'm like empiezo a llorar because like I'm so scared I'm like I don't understand but I wipe my tears I fill it out because it's basically like a calculation I had to do. So I'm like, bitch, I'm smart. I'll figure it out. Lloré un poquito. I, I gave it to her. She read it and she's like, okay, I can show you the project. You can start tomorrow. It's a temporary job. Do you want it? And I'm like, yeah, but what the f*** is it, you know? So so basically the housing authority had gone into a public-private partnership and purchased land to build affordable housing with Section 8 vouchers. But... Because there were people living there, you cannot displace anyone if you're using tax dollars without offering them something called relocation assistance. So basically, my job was to help these people find a replacement housing in three months. Out of the 42 households, only one of them spoke, um, only one or two spoke English, and her translator that she had lined up for this project was basically going back to work because he was doing this as a side hustle. He was going back to work in the fall because he was he worked for the education department and she had no translator for 40 households. And she knew she needed someone that spoke Spanish. So she didn't even live in that town. Basically, she trained me. This was kind of before Zoom or like Teams or anything like that. She would just train me via email and tell me, okay, take this. And I would help people uh, fill out applications, um, fill out claims. So let's, I'm going to give you an example and you can probably cut this out. But if someone, someone's rent was $500 and this is very simplified because no one pays $500 in rent. You guys know this, but let's say someone's rent was $500 where they lived, but market rent was $750. That's a $250 difference. So we would give them that differential for 42 months. Y no importaba si tenían papeles or no, because California law doesn't really call that out, that undocumented folks can't get assistance. So we were giving assistance to folks, even if they were undocumented. We got people Section 8 vouchers. I mean, I would literally convince landlords. I would help them fill out applications. Porque todos eran del campo, la verdad. Like, much, hasta tenía personas que eran, este, que ni hablaban español. What is that other language that a lot of um, indígenas talk in Mexico? Uh, Nahuatl, Purapecha. No, 
Ay, ni me acuerdo que, que, de qué pueblo eran, but there was a lot of folks that like Spanish was their second language, so they didn't even speak Spanish. I even got to collaborate with the California Rural Legal Aid because at first they stepped into the project because they didn't know if we were going to treat the undocumented people fairly. So they were not on my team or whatever, but once the lady got to know me, she respected me and like understood I was just there to help and I wasn't trying to like take benefits away from anyone. So yeah, we were able to get assistance for folks for three and a half years. And this is all under the law. Like folks are eligible for this if they're displaced by public projects. So anything that has like tax funding. So yeah, at the end of the project, I was supposed to be laid off and she called me into a meeting and she was like, so I don't have another project, but I don't want to lay you off like you did a good job. And so she let me stay on. Um, so in California, I mostly worked in affordable housing, doing stuff like this. Um, sometimes we would just um, displace people for short periods of time while their uh, affordable housing units got renovated and then we would move them back. I helped tons of Latinos in California become homeowners under this program, which was like my, that was my like happy place, you know, because you know how hard it is to own a house, especially in California, especially low income folks, but we were able to do it. And that was mostly my client. I did do some transportation projects and then I moved up, I moved back. So I've been doing this for 12 years. Oh, that's amazing. Tell us a little bit about what you do now, like, or a little bit more about what you're focused on in the city of Seattle. So right now, um, I'm mostly doing transportation projects. I haven't been able to find any affordable housing projects to work on. I think most of the housing authorities here do their own relocation work. So I haven't been able to get in on that side of the, of the business, but I mean, transportation is still super important, so I don't mind being a part of that. I just, yeah, so I've been doing it. I've been back for four years. So, yeah, just working with local transportation agencies, doing this or getting temporary construction easements so they can move their projects forward. I've done, that's basically what I do right now. I volunteer sometimes. So there's this amazing organization in Seattle on Beacon Hill called El Centro de la Raza. And when I was a bad kid, they took me in and, you know, made sure I had a home. And so I like to go back now and I work on their legal clinic and just, you know, whenever I can, I help community, but nothing like super, super like set in stone. I don't have titles or anything. No, that's I think that's crazy. amazing too. But yeah, like I keep like getting stuck on the fact that it wasn't a Craigslist ad. Like that's yeah. <laughs> so crazy. And that's, yeah, Craigslist was like the place for everything and anything. <laughs> Yo, and it's usually, a scam. it's usually a scam like I got so lucky that it wasn't a scam <laughs> <laughs> they weren't like trying to like put me into like I don't know sex work or something <laughs> I wanted to go back a little bit about you mentioning like when you had your your daughter right it was your daughter you talked a little bit about when you were younger how you were trying really hard to like hold on to anything that's tied to your culture. Like now that you have children, like how do you as an immigrant mother, like 
pass on that culture and experiences to your kids? Well, I'm going to be real honest with you. At the beginning, it was hard. Her dad is not Latino. And he all, he is an immigrant himself. So he wasn't born in the United States either. But his immigrant experience is a little bit different than mine, right? Like his parents were in the military and he was in the military. So he has a real sense of being an American and assimilating as much as possible, right? And I, you know, like when she was younger, he was like, yo, like, let's just speak English to her. I don't want to confuse her. And in my own ignorance, like I kind of gave into that, you know, when I shouldn't have. And which is something like I super regret, like the older I got and the more I learned and like, it was just like not the right move. But I give myself grace for like understanding why that was, but also able to recognize that that wasn't the right move and working towards something different. So now I'm just super, let's see, she had her quinceanera. So that was really special because I did not have one. My mom didn't have one. No tenían dinero ellos to like really have one. And so being able to have a quinceanera for her was like such a huge deal for us. We had relatives from Mexico come up and that was so fucking special, but my dad couldn't come because he couldn't get a visa. Like some deals couldn't come because they couldn't get visas. And it's so frustrating that even like, cause I was going to pay for my dad's plane ticket, you know, but like not being able to have that was difficult. I have tried to like expose her to Mexican music and like, you know, media as much as I can. But I think what really made the difference was taking her to Mexico. I wasn't really able to go back as often as I should have just because of finances, because it is so expensive to go home. And so when I was younger and not making a lot of money, we didn't really go. Um, but now that she's older and like my finances, have, I mean, I'm in debt like a motherfucker, but like we figure it out sometimes, you know, when we go and having her go, seeing her cousins, like llevándola al pueblo de donde es mi abuelito, like taking her to, I really wanted to take her to like some ruins just so that she could see like what our culture was, especially when there was a lot of like anti-Mexican shit in the media like, I wanted her to see, like, we were powerful. We are powerful and, like, for her to be proud. And I think she really picked up on that. And also just educating myself about, like, how we came here, why we came here, anti-colonialism, anti-racism stuff, and just really trying to give her that perspective, especially because on her dad's in her dad's household, she's not getting that same type of perspective. So really trying to combat any anti-Black, anti-Mexican, anti-shit that she might encounter and just letting her know, like, who the fuck she is. Right, I love that. And I think I've, I've never heard those words from, like, the parents' perspective. It's always been, like, you know, um, from the kids' perspective of how they think um, their parents felt when they were making those kinds of parenting decisions. So I think it's really for me like it's eye-opening right because i've never heard like the words of a parent like telling me oh this is why i made these decisions with my child and this is how like my experience affected how i raised my kid but i mean i've met your daughter and i've seen how you guys are and i think like no i'm so proud of you like you did an amazing job like i'm just super super proud of you thank you um i think 
a book that changed my life was All About Love by Bell Hooks. She talks about parent-child relationship. And, you know, I think I was really scared of her not being well-behaved because I felt, and, and not that her dad ever threatened me or anything like that, but I felt like if my daughter wasn't well-behaved, they were going to take her away from me. You know, it was just like, no one threatened me, but it was just like a fear I had, right? And so I was very, I disciplined her pretty hard when she was little and like, you know, corporal punishment and all that. And so being able to apologize to her for doing that, like so many years later, because I didn't know that that was bad. I was just, I didn't want a malcriada, you know? And so like being able to like apologize for punishing her in that way, I think was like really transformative to our relationship. Um, and, and she's easy to parent, like she's a good child. She's a kind person. She's funny. She's a good, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's not hard to be a good parent when you have such a badass kid, you know, like, you know, just like a great kid. I mean, honestly, like, all that she is is because of her. It's not anything that I did. Because based on what you were saying, like you were from a young age, like ingrained into like that good immigrant narrative, like I have to do this or else like this is going to happen. So I think it's just really good to hear how throughout your experience, you've been able to kind of like break that down and like try not to pass it on to your daughter as well of like, you have to be perfect or else like this bad thing is going to happen. And I think it's okay if, like, I'm here and for the rest of my life, I was to be able to work in a restaurant or si trabajo nada más en el campo. See, that's good enough. You know, like, we don't have to be these super fucking immigrant, like, Albert Einstein-ass people. Like, we really don't. And, like, I wish someone had told me that when I was little, even though, like, I was getting into trouble, like, I shouldn't have had that guilt. Like I should have just been enough being, you know, a regular, regular kid. We are worthy of being here. This is our land. Like, like, I don't, I just, I really truly believe that. Like if it wasn't for NAFTA, if it wasn't for the decisions that this country made, there wouldn't be this many immigrants. You think my mom wanted to leave? I'm sure your parents didn't want to leave. No one wanted to leave. There is good in our country, but the United States government made choices that made us get here. I, I truly do believe that now. No, yeah, and I feel like that's something I tell a lot of people too that I think about all the time. Like, I think people treat being undocumented as like, we just feel it or like, we feel it like in our hearts, you know, like, and we see it every day. So you treat it as like biological or if it's like a fact, but like, people were made undocumented or like people can stop being undocumented like y'all it's not real like <laughs> like all, all these like borderlines and stuff they're not real so i think that just comes from like us just feeling it so deeply and how it affects everyone every day i just like i feel bad for our parents that had to come here i can't imagine being you know what am i 40 or you 20 something and like going to a completely different country not being able to work you know, legally. So having to do things that, you know, might be dangerous, people treating you like shit, when really you're the one knowing two languages, like, it's really fucking brave. 
to come to this country. I think it's way braver, uh, way more hustle than I ever have. And I feel like I'm a big ass hustler, right? But like our parents, like, wow. I don't know. That's what I think. Yeah, no, I can't imagine like everything they had to go through, all the sacrifices they made. Like, yeah. And especially now, like with all the, I think it was easier when we came, right? Because like we just pretended we were going to FTC. I don't know how we're doing it now. Like, I'm like, oh my God, with like, the shit ain't going on in Texas and stuff. And I just, it's like scary. I, I don't know how, how folks do, but I feel like they do have no choice, right? Even in the le- legal clinic where I volunteer, like you hear really harrowing stories. No one does that shit for fun. No one does it for a pair of Jordans or the opportunity to work in construction. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Like you really do it because you don't have any other options. Yeah, which yeah. I think to me, like, oh, no. No, like there's even, you know, people who in their home countries, they were maybe like doctors or nurses or had these like jobs that required like higher education. And then once they come here, they're not able to to keep practicing that. So even just making that decision like really shows the need that folks have to to go through this like process of of trying to form a new life here. Absolutely. Just my hats off to our parents because. It's not that we had a better life here. Like, I, I do feel safe and whatever here. I, I am grateful. But sometimes I do wonder what my life would be like if we had stayed home. You know, maybe I wouldn't have had help, you know, as much money as I have now. But I mean, I'm still struggling. So like, you know, at least you're struggling with your family. I don't know. It's like, I don't want to romanticize Mexico because there's a lot of fucked up shit over there. But it feels really fucking good to go home sometimes you know, and, and be Mexican and just be Mexican, you know, and I'm sorry, like, I know I sh- it's hard for me to say these things to folks that can't go back, but I hope you guys get to go back home soon, too. You Like, you deserve it. Thank you, you know, yeah, and I think, like, all of these points that you're bringing up, they're literally conversations that I just had with my cousins, like, two days ago. Like, they were telling me how, you know, if... I had the opportunity to choose back then, like when I was little, would I have stayed? And I'm like, I don't know, maybe I would have because like, you know, I had a life over there. I came here when I was eight. So in that moment, all I knew was my family and my friends over there. But they were saying like, but now like thinking about all of the things you have access to here that you wouldn't have access to over there in Mexico. And they were telling me stories about how like, you know, the police stops them and they like can just beat you up just for stopping you or like the carteles over there because I'm from Michoacan. So things are really bad over there. So they were just saying how even though we do have this image of our life or like what could have been just the fact that our parents made this like really difficult choice also should kind of like I don't even know what I'm saying. But yeah, these were conversations that like we were having just a couple of days ago and it's really like a mind to think about what could have been and like what is. It's sad. I I never saw it with sadness. And the older I get, the more I learn. I it's just it makes me sad. I think now more than anything for like us as little kids, like coming here. I think I just I didn't understand the weight of it until recently. I think. No, yeah, I feel like I'm the same way. And I think even with like memories, I think like it's also really hard because like I don't know like romanticizing where you're from like I don't know if like those memories are just like my romanticized versions or if they're real like so it's I, I understand what you're saying. Carlos how old were you when you get when you came here? Uh, Six. 
So we were kind of all like in that same little pile of yeah, that, six, that seven, little, eight. Yeah. Uh, cute. <laughs> and did y'all know you were moving here or was it like a mine like was a, a two week vacation too? <laughs> so for me, that first year like was really rough. Like I remember I would cry on my way to school every day and I would be like so mad at my parents. One time, like my dad, he came home from work all tired and he didn't want to go play with me. So I was so mad. I was like, if you don't want to play with me, then take me back to Mexico because I have friends over there that want to play with me. And like, I was like, damn, like I really said that to him. But I think from what you were saying, where you were trying to like assimilate more to like the culture here for me, it was the complete opposite. Like I hated this country. I hated everything. I wouldn't listen to English music, watch no shows in English. Like I was just pissed off as a child. <laughs> Fed up. <laughs> I think I would have really loved to grow up with a bunch of fucking Mexicans. I think that I would have really enjoyed that. And I'm glad you got to experience that, man. It's just like, it just feels like, I think that would have been pretty dope. No, yeah, I was just like going to say that the first time where I experienced like culture shock of just being around white people was literally in college. Like all throughout <laughs> middle school and like high school, it was just a bunch of Latinos and High school, no, college was really just the first time where I saw like more than five white people in one place. I honestly like didn't even start dating like Mexican boys till I was in my 30s because, you know, I was dating my daughter's dad and I met like, you know, different men. And then I dated my first Mexican guy and that shit changed my life. <laughs> like that felt really good. Like it just felt really good to not have to explain myself to folks like that was honestly I couldn't I I can't even describe that feeling you know or even like when me and Carlos hang out like it's so fluid how we just you know go from English to Spanish and like you know we we just understand each other I think I just it feels really good for myself when I'm around Mexicans I'll just put it that way I mean, and not that I don't enjoy other folks, right? But like, um, yeah, it just feels good to be around us. It feels safe. It feels, I mean, not all the time, you know, but like generally it feels like home. Yeah, and I'm going to have to agree because I feel like when you're in spaces that maybe like there's not a lot of Spanish being spoken or like, I, I guess that can be applied to like any language, like that's your first language. But if you don't hear it a lot, I feel like it makes you feel like, it's not home and like it's a little dangerous and like I, I got a little bit of that culture shock when I moved up here to Seattle because there's not really a lot of like folks of color like in the city so like it, it feels a little weird to like experience that for the first time so like yeah you do feel safe when like people are speaking like your first language and people know your experiences but yeah it's culture shock a serious culture shock like coming up here I feel like maybe though once you go to school, you'll start meeting a little bit more people. Ojalá. And I mean, even like, um, I feel like the gay scene up here is very different. I don't, actually, I don't think I've ever said I'm gay on this podcast. Hey, y'all, I'm gay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think um, just the way that I think Latinos are around each other uh, is very different than, I guess, like Americans treat each other. So I think you do get to see like those differences when you're in different kinds of spaces. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm still searching that around here. I do try to like, you know, whenever I I can, I do try to find us, you know, and then feel at home for like the for the couple hours that I'm I'm there, you know. And I, I know Karina, I kind of know what it's like because 
I lived in Yuma, you know, so, you know, Arizona is a whole different thing, you know, um, but living on the border was weird, right? Um, especially in that military town, I think it kind of insulated me from like really super Mexican spaces. Um, so even though you were in the border, you didn't really have like a lot of folks who looked like you or how was that demographic like? No, for sure. I had a ton of Mexican friends, um, but uh -huh. they were Mexican American, right? No mm -hmm. había muchos mexicanos que eran de México como yo. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, yeah, they spoke Spanish and like, you know, are definitely anti-racist women and stuff. But I think on the flip side of that, it's a military town. So like I chose to date like my daughter's dad. And so I was because I was married so young, like I definitely was in military spaces, which is like hyper Americanized uh, propaganda stuff that I really did buy into for some years. And thank God, like, I was able to learn. I mean, I always had, like, a sense of justice and, like, what was right and wrong. But I definitely feel like being in that military culture did, it wasn't good for me, you know, emotionally and spiritually. And then, do you have um, anything else you want to share with us before we end off the interview? I can't think of anything. <laughs> um Thank you so much for thinking of me. I feel so honored. Thank to, you. Oh, yeah. Great conversation. I think I do have one question that we oh, la, la, la. have unofficially been kind of asking everybody, but not officially. What is a way that you experience joy? Right now, I bought myself a paddleboard off of OfferUp. And I'm not that good of a swimmer. And... I can bear, I've like stood up twice for like 10 seconds, if that, but it's really dope to like be out there like rowing in the water and it's warm and my dog's on the board. And I mean, it's just like, I just wish I had done it younger. Like there's a lot of things that like, I wish I had done younger, um, like going hiking more, just enjoying yeah, just being outside, like not working so much. I think I've I've been such a workaholic in my life and like just not working, not answering those phone calls, like just being in the water has been really dope right now. One day I'm going to stand up. My goal is to stand up next summer. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. Yes, definitely. Like whenever people stop listening to this podcast, go outside, go enjoy nature. <laughs> also, oh, like I love can I just say like we belong there and I didn't know that like I thought it was some white people shit but it's really like uh -huh. harsh so like I'm also a runner and like sometimes when I'm running I think of that um, I think son los puren pechas que corren mucho en México I don't remember sí. what, what indigenous <laughs> folks in Mexico do it but there's like these Mexicans that just be running for the joy of it it's kind of like they're um and I need to Google it. I'm so sorry. But like running, just any sort of outdoor exercise, I feel like I didn't understand that that shit was for me as well when I was younger. And so I'm running, I'm lifting, I'm being out there, not skinny. I'm still doing this, this, these things. 
And I feel like someone should have told me that when I was like in my 20s that like you don't have to have a six pack to run or hike or paddleboard or weightlift. Like you can literally look however you look and no one's going to judge you. So like go out and do that really scary thing. It is not some white people shit. You belong there. Ignore their dirty ass looks like this shit is for you and there is community there are brown and black people doing this shit all over the motherfucking place like you belong there i just i wish i had heard that a little bit more when i was a kid which i feel like is th- this can be like a whole other conversation or like a, a whole different episode but like when i got here literally like i saw people diving off of like a diving board into the lake and i was like this is some white people shit like i've never seen like <laughs> anything like this before <laughs> so it's really interesting to think like why do we think that having access to nature and green spaces is like racialized? Like why, why do we feel that before we know it? When in reality it really is, but why do we feel it before we know it? Like that's really interesting. Well, I think they also actively kept us out of those spaces, right? So like, oh yeah, you're right. You know, it's not really our fault, but you know, or uh, not that it's not really our fault. Like we think these things because of like their active exclusion but it is for us it could be just for us like you don't have to involve other folks like you don't have to live super heavy I mean you know Carlos like we just need to be out there doing whatever it is that makes us happy amen no and I completely agree like always find like little things that make you happy and I mean even like going to the lake or swimming or taking a jog like you deserve to have like a little happiness mm-hmm. Yes, I love this ending. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you. And this has been a great conversation. Thank you for having me. Muchísimas gracias. Gracias. And that was all, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Migrants on Air is a Fuerte Network production in association with Orona Multimedia. We'd like to formally thank everyone involved in this episode. Your hosts have been myself, Karina Dominguez, and Carlos Alberto. (laughs) Our guest has been Brie Vasquez. Uh, Graphics were done by Karina Dominguez. Theme song is Crazy Like That by Lo-Fi. Production and editing by Dani Orona. Make sure you follow us on Spotify for this and all other Fuerte content. And make sure you log on to Fuerte.org and sign up for our mailing list. Mil gracias. Hasta la próxima.